Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends or enemies who can't watch the show from anywhere else, have them go www.hotm.tv and they can see it from anywhere in the world on streaming video. Hey, and I'm talking to you every Sunday... From Salt Lake City North, we have three Bible study classes going on at the same time at the three major universities, U of U, uh, Utah State, and Weber State. We call these Calvary Campus Meetings, Campus standing for Christian Assemblies, meeting to prayerfully understand Scripture. This is not church unless you want to make it your church experience. In fact, we hope you will use it as a supplement to your regular church experience. Christian assemblies means all people uh, assembling under the Christian faith. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. We're just finishing the Gospel of Matthew and we'll be done at the end of December. Beginning the first Sunday in January, we're going to begin with the Gospel of John And it's taken us 70 weeks to get through Matthew, probably the same for John. But join us. It's a great time uh, to fellowship, to read the Word, and and meet with other people. Along the same lines, on Sunday, December 13th in Logan, Utah, there's going to be a Cache Valley multi-church youth meeting at the old Logan Library on 1st North and 1st East. Uh, The guest speaker is moi. And... uh, We're going to be, the topic is how to survive or thrive in a predominantly Mormon community. That's uh, Sunday, December 13th from 2.30 to 5.30. I won't be talking that whole time at the old Logan Library. Join us, Christian Youth. Christian Youth sounds like a a rebel band. Christian Youth, join us in Logan. Uh, It should be fun. Well, last Friday, we held our annual Christmas open house. If you weren't able to make it, we missed you. And it was a great time being able to see many of you face-to-face, shake your hand, talk to you. We thank you for coming out, for your support of TV20 over the years, and for your taking some of your valuable time to spend it with us. Um, After uh, the evening, one matter became very apparent to me and uh, my uh, brothers in the ministry, and that's people don't like my beard very much. At least uh, uh, that's what they said. 
Uh, one supportive lady from Park City told me that she has never missed Heart of the Matter. It's the only show she watches on television, but she got to the point where she hated looking at me so much she would dim it to black and just listen to the audio. So uh, people were just emphatic. By the end of the night, I had hundreds saying, shave the beard, pleading, shave the beard. My good friend Jeff listened to uh, this and he said, you know what, if everyone's saying that, there's probably something to it. So there it is. I hope you're all happy with yourselves. <laughs> now I look like a washed out baby face puke. Uh, anyway. Hey, uh, let me take a moment and uh, officially greet and thank all of you YouTube viewers out there around the world. Thanks so much for tuning in and sharing these clips and our vision with people all over. It is our hope that you'll take the time time to send some of your favorite YouTube video clips from these shows and send them to your family or your friends, no matter if they're believers, non-believers, LDS, whatever. What the Lord has done with this worldwide grassroots approach is absolutely amazing. And I want to thank our Norwegian volunteer, uh, Andreas, who just one day wrote me and said, can I take your show apart and put it on clips on YouTube? I said, sure. He's, he's put together uh, over 500 clips and they get thousands of views and many viewers from all over the world who are tuning into the ministry. And so I thank Andreas for that. One person does make a difference if they're led to do the thing the Lord wants them to do. And we thank all you YouTube fans out there. I'm continually amazed what God does and how he blesses us uh, through people like you. Well, an interesting bit of news came out of San Francisco Bay Area last week. According to the San Francisco Beacon, homosexual reverends in the universality movement are posthumously sealing or marrying deceased men to men and deceased women to women in sacred resorts around Monterey, California. Guess who their first proxy subjects have been? That's right, past LDS prophets and apostles. According to Ramja Bolchek, a reporter with the Beacon, the university, universality movement participants kneeled across an altar last week in one of their sacred supper rooms and married Joseph Smith Jr. to none other than Brigham Young himself, both early Mormon leaders. Then they sealed Emma Smith to Eliza R. Snow and Porter Rockwell to B.H. Roberts. Reverend Ram just said, quote, we believe that many of these men and women would appreciate our free will offering of open love and are quite certain that some of them will take full advantage of this important vicarious work we are doing on their, doing on their behalf. It is our belief that Joseph and Brigham were possibly lovers and this work is merely an attempt to let them share their gay love eternally. Uh, Howard N. James, stake president for the LDS Church in the seaside town of Beaumont, California, suggests otherwise. Marriage between a man and woman here on earth and the case is, is, is for man and woman here on earth and the case is no different here in the afterlife. I find these practices frankly offensive and know that the founders of our faith would not appreciate the actions taken in their name. Universality spokesman Seymour Butts considered the retort narrow-minded. He, quote, our work is offered in the spirit of love and generosity, and we don't believe anyone who truly understands our hearts and our desire to help all indulge in eternal love could ever take exception to this great and marvelous work we're doing. 
But Slater added that many man-boy marriages are going to take place and wildebeest-to-women marriages will soon be taking place in the spring of 09. Of course, I'm kidding. The whole thing was a joke, but you see... The LDS have no problem pushing their views on others, including baptizing our dead into their religion. But what if the tables were turned? Just a thought. And while I didn't make this, while I did make this up, I didn't make this following up. There was an article in the Deseret News recently and an advertisement in the Salt Lake Tribune for an LDS company that makes and sells board games. I went online and checked these board games out, and let me take a minute and describe them to you. Now remember, these games are the creation of some very faithful, ardent, well-meaning LDS people, but I think the board games and how they're described on the website uh, reveals what the typical Latter-day Saint thinks. The first one is called Celestial Z, and it's a game where you roll celestial dice and if you roll five Celestials in a row, you win. Well, okay, whatever. They're, they're allowed to do that. The second one's called The Greatest Mission in the World Game. It retails for $29. They describe it as your mission is the greatest mission in the world, and now you can prove your missionary skill to spread the gospel throughout the world and become the greatest missionary of all time. Object of the game, you have been called as a mission president for planet Earth. Your task is to convert the world by spreading your missionary army to every country in the world. The first player to spread his missionaries to every nation of the world wins the game. The third one is called LDSopoly. It retails for $40. It's similar to Monopoly. It's described like this. Players participate in the quote-unquote united order. Every player is given a stewardship over a number of temples that are located throughout the LDSopoly game board. The object of the game is to successfully administer and expand the number of temples under your stewardship. You accomplish this by collecting offerings from those who visit your temples. So there you go. And then we have a fourth one quickly. And this is called uh, Build the Kingdom of uh, Board Game. You've been called to the greatest mission of the world, Earth. Your duty is to build the kingdom of God by placing books of Mormons. The first player to gain 10 celestial points wins. And you get these points by placing books of Mormons, doing more baptisms, and getting more converts, and opening more websites. And then it says in the end, beware of Satan who can slow your progress. And then finally we have the fifth one, and it's called Temples. It's a card collection game. Make your best hand of temple cards to play against your opponent. The person with the highest priesthood-powered temples in their hand wins the round. You must do your genealogy in order to activate your temple cards. You can't make this stuff up! You can't! Okay, uh, let's see. In response to the growing internet examination of Mormonism, the LDS Church has attempted to get the media and other interested parties to come to its own website for information. This online LDS resource has been called Newsroom, and it really is nothing more than an institutionalized place to spin the facts and keep people in the dark about the past. For example, if you go to Newsroom and you search information about Joseph Smith and polygamy, or plural marriage, all it says is this, that Joseph Smith made a prayerful inquiry about plural marriage in 1831, which resulted in, quote, 
the divine instruction to reinstitute the practice, which became, it reads, quote, public and widely known during the time of Brigham Young. Boy, that is just a ton of information you can sink your teeth into about Joseph Smith and polygamy, isn't it? First of all, the phrase to reinstitute polygamy is a complete manipulation because it was never, it says reinstitute uh, polygamy by divine instruction. To reinstitute is a lie because God never instituted polygamy. And so they play with the little words there, but this isn't the point. If you were a gullible member of the media and you went to the LDS newsroom to get your facts about Mormonism, or you were a member of the church and you wanted to see exactly what the church says are the facts, you'd probably say, well, this is very reasonable stuff. I can accept this. And while it might seem reasonable, it is lacking in substance and truth. To me, it would be like being engaged to a girl who told you that she has reserved herself and all of her love and her body and, and everything for, for you and your marriage, only to find out that she's worked for 10 years in a whorehouse in Vegas. I mean, it's just horrible the amount of stuff they withhold and what they give out as truth. What are the facts quickly about Joseph Smith and polygamy? Well, this is a long introduction for me to promote a book that has recently been talked about uh, by a respected historian, George D. Smith, and he reveals a comprehensive narrative on Joseph Smith's polygamy. The book is titled Polygamy, I mean Nauvoo Polygamy, but we called it Celestial Marriage. The Salt Lake Trib ran an article online about the release of the book. It said, Disguised in a man's hat, Louisa Beeman stood on the banks of the Mississippi River on April 5th, 1841, and cited vows that made her the plural wife of Joseph Smith Jr. Over the next 30 months, more secret marriages followed as Joseph Smith added orphaned teenagers, middle-aged spinsters, sisters, mothers and daughters, and other men's wives to his burgeoning clandestine family, all while establishing a community, economy, and religion. In an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune, author Smith, curiously heightened by the mystery and silence surrounding Joseph Smith's plural marriage, this is what drew him to the subject. How did Joseph Smith court and marry so many women? Unseen amidst his public life as a religious and community leader, he asked in the book. The author, Smith, said he began compiling lists of the church founders' wives more than a decade ago. His research was spurned on by the limited information offered in the faith's official history. Modern-day Mormons and the church itself, he said, are still in the process of forgetting this aspect of their history and the role polygamy played in the events in Nauvoo. Smith, the author, sides with historians who believe Joseph Smith Jr. first broached polygamy as a tenant of the fledging church in 1831, though the practice did not take root until the 1840s and was not publicly acknowledged until 1852. He is unflinching about the unseemly aspects of the prophet's life, which includes stints as a treasure seeker and rumors of sexual indiscretions. Take Fanny Alger, for instance. Todd Compton, LDS writer, is among the historians who concluded that in the early 1830s, Fanny Alger became Joseph Smith's first plural wife. 
But Smith, this author, like historian Fawn Brody, believes the relationship was merely an affair and gives Beeman status as Joseph Smith's first documented plural wife. The youngest was Helen Mark Kimball, who became Joseph Smith's 26th wife at age 14. The oldest was 58. Married women agreed to unions with the prophet to strengthen family ties and theologically put themselves at the head of the line at the gates of heaven. At least five women rejected Joseph Smith's offers. The marriages were denied publicly and mostly kept from first wife Emma, requiring the prophet to make furtive conjugal visits. Smith calls the prophet's uh, efforts to enlist others in the practice the spark that eventually left Nauvoo in flames. This is important, this part. Celestial marriage was synonymous with plural marriage in Nauvoo, the author Smith writes, and was, quote, the prominent theological principle of the religion. Since 1890, when the LDS Church first renounced the practice, celestial marriage has been redefined to mean temple marriages that united a couple for time and all eternity, he said. I get weekly emails from people all over and they say that they place their trust and their faith in this founder. They sing praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. They tell me that I am terrible for bringing these things out that are lies. Do your history. Look into it yourself. Read that book and find out what this guy used to do at the same time while claiming to be a prophet of God receiving revelation that you're embracing today. One suggestion, utlm.org. Go and find out your research. Uh, speaking of re, uh, utlm.org, they're having a special right now, which I fully support, and that is if you buy $70 worth of their books and research, they will give you a copy of I Was a Born Again Mormon for your family or friends or for your own personal use. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we pray that your spirit will be with us and we'll learn truth and that uh, the things I say that are not correct, let them just fall dead on the floor and people who are searching for truth will find it. We pray for our audience here and outside the studio and for those who will be watching on YouTube, for our volunteers and staff, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we spent the last few weeks defending the Bible as God's trusted word. Last week, we admitted that for a time there was some variation among what churches then considered acceptable holy writ in the early Christian church. Okay, so they really weren't sure at the beginning what was really true holy writ and what wasn't. Because of the rapid expanse of the church over the vast Roman Empire, uh, shortly after Christ died, and the fact that the churches had no way of knowing what was being written apostolically in other parts of the land, it took a great deal of time, research, and diligence to gather all the writings together and authenticate them as inspired or not. But remember this, men did not choose these books as authoritative God brought them forth in a number of different ways and means, and this is what I'm going to discuss briefly tonight before we open up the phones. Now, the LDS missionaries and leaders of their church have long attacked the councils that were held by churches in the 4th century and as a means uh, to defend heresy and corruption from entering into the church. 
They uh, like to say that these councils got rid of the pure and precious truths that the Bible could have hold, and they implemented the, their own books, and it made the Bible an inferior book to rely upon solely. Hence, Joseph Smith said, let me give you the stuff that's missing, and he provided first the Book of Mormon, then the Doctrine and Covenants, or then the Pearl of Great Price, and then the Doctrine and Covenants, and then the modern revelations that everybody is supposed to be receiving. Communication was slow over the expanse of the Roman Empire and persecution was so intense for almost 300 years, there was never really a single chance for all the church leaders and scholars and believers to come together and make a fair and reasonable study of what was authoritative or of apostolic nature. Nevertheless, the apostolic books thrived, were copied, and were used and accepted as they were made available to the different churches throughout the land. Then a window of opportunity opened for the Word of God to be gloriously gathered together, compiled, and proven apostolically vital uh, as a whole. But I'm going to talk more about that in a second. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was first taught orally and uh, interpreted by virtue of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out in abundance beginning at the day of Pentecost, and in light of the Old Testament uh, scripture that was held as uh, canon. Sometime before 70 AD, these oral accounts gave way to the synoptic gospels being written, and those gospels were Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Legalism and antinomianism, antinomianism it means lawlessness, so legalism and lawlessness began to creep into the church and it gave rise to apostolic letters, epistles, which were the, given full authority by Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. The demand for a historical sketch of the early church was provided by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. Revelation was given as a bookend to these uh, writings by the, uh, the Apostle John, and it kind of consummated, Revelation consummated the end notes and all of God's plan and what he had in his purposes and designs for this uh, human race. This guy named Marcion pops up. He was a heretic around 140 AD, and he took some of the apostolic writings and altered them, and he compiled all of it into one book. He included one book of the Gospels, Luke, and then he took 10 of the Pauline epistles after he had mutilated them, and he put them together in a kind of a book of, of doctrine and content. This heretic's actions, as well as all sorts of other false and corruptive teachings that were creeping in, caused believers and the early church leaders to see the need to gather the authoritative writings and separate them from the false or partially true manuscripts that are floating around. The criterion they used to determine whether these writings were uh, authoritative or not were four. There were probably a number of them, but four main ones. The first one was, did they come from the apostles? Was the writer a bona fide apostle, first-hand witness of Jesus Christ? And if not, did the writer have close association and the approbation of a living apostle? Uh, as in the book of Luke, Acts, Mark, and Hebrews. Possibly Hebrews. The second criteria they used was content. Did all that was written meet the standard and the stamp of Holy Writ? Did it measure up? Remember, canon is, is a word for measuring stick. 
did that book that was presented, did the epistle measure up with the Old Testament standards? Was it conclusively sound, verse by verse? If it was going verse by verse and it was conclusively sound, and then suddenly in the middle of it, they came up with something like, and the goat stood up on its hind legs and danced and spoke in a different language, they would say the whole thing is no good. It had to be conclusively sound as an entire book. The third criteria they used was its universality. It's all the same word I used for that fake church, uh, fake group. Did the churches as a whole receive the book wholeheartedly? All right. Did the writing appeal universally to all the churches that were established by the Holy Spirit and the apostolic teachings? And then the fourth uh, way they did it is, did the book manifest itself as being God-authored? Did it fall in line with what 2 Timothy says, 3.16? Did the Holy Spirit witness to the believers that it was a true book? This was one of the strongest uh, implements that was used. Of all these criteria, uh, and all of these criteria were in place well before uh, any council gathered together. All of these criteria were in place from the beginning of the writings when they started to come out. It wasn't like the group of men who were uh, uh, donned in black robes and were a religious cult said, okay, we need to control all these writings now. And we're No, not at all. These safeguards were in place from very early on in the church, and we know this by reading the early church fathers' uh, recordings and references of these apostolic writings. None of these writings were institutionally placed upon believers by a group or a body of men. The church, which is the body of believers, was scattered across the Roman Empire. Generally, they embraced the New Testament books as either being acceptable or not, with a few exceptions. There were seven exceptions of the 27 New Testament books that were held up and weren't, they weren't certain if they should deem them authoritative or not. These seven books were under scrutiny well before these councils gathered, and uh, they received the authoritative stamp before the councils gathered. The books in question were James, 2 Peter, Hebrews, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. All the rest of the New Testament books were universally accepted as apostolic, authoritative, and canonical a hundred years before the before Carthage, where they stamped what is canon and what is not. The hesitancy to accept these seven books by both believers and the early church fathers and scholars was based in four general concerns. First, how the writer identified himself. James and Jude referred themselves as servants in their writings of Christ instead of as apostles, while the author of 2nd and 3rd John refers to himself as an elder and not an apostle, and John also refers to himself in the book of Revelation as a servant and a brother. Apostolic authorship or the tutelage of an, uh, of an apostle was vital. You can see, so vital that they said, wait a minute, these guys aren't calling themselves apostles. Who are these writers really? They were very concerned. Second, Hebrews and Second Peter's vocabulary and style of writing are quite different from Paul's other writings and from Peter's other writings, so authorship was not definitive and was subsequently questioned. Third, James was not written to address the universal church. The book of James was written to address new converts that were Hebrews. And because it didn't have universal application, they questioned whether it should be in, uh, included in the New Testament or not. 
And finally, Jude uh, was questioned as it seems to quote from an apocryphal book of Enoch in Jude 9 and 14 and 15. And because there seems to be a reference to an apocryphal writing, they thought Jude may not be of divine origin. Gradually, however, these difficulties were ironed out and these books were accepted universally. Again, reception of these books by the body of Christ is evident from the early church fathers well before any council gathered together and deemed them authoritative. When we come back, we'll finish up on this and open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. After our break, we'll come back, finish this up, and take your calls. Have some good questions. We'll see you then in a second. As Christian persecution began to diminish and there was time for, for word to get around that a council was going to be held, they then held the first council at Carthage close to the end of the 4th century. It was at this third council of Carthage held in 397 AD for a number of purposes that the first decision on what was canon and what was not was made. What was the decision? The council stipulated that only canonical books were to be read in churches. That's what they said. Only canonical books should be read in churches. And they listed exactly 27 books that should be listed in the New Testament. And they're the same 27 books that we have in our New Testament today, with Hebrews finally being accepted on the grounds of it being writings from Paul. Trust our New Testament books. Um, they possess throughout continuity within each other, even though they were written all in different places. They can, uh, contain continuity with the Old Testament, which was written 1,500 years before. There is no conflict between the, all those books, 66 books, with each other. And when people have tried to suggest there are, they're, they're crazy. These books were written in different languages over uh, a couple uh, thousand year period of time, and yet they have a continuity. If I could read you quotes from, from the greatest minds in America and the world, they stand on the Bible as being the most important, the greatest, the most uh, uh, moving book in all of literature. And yet the LDS says, you can't trust it, you, you, you know, and they say it publicly as though, well, you know, it's very good. We love the Bible. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. And we don't think it's that bad. But behind closed doors, having been behind those closed doors for 40 years, it is not used at all. And that's part of the problem. Next week, we're going to talk about the Bible manuscripts and how they authenticate the Bible that we use today. This is an interesting thing that we're going to go back and now look at the manuscripts and then how the current Bible was put into action. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Please, first-time callers, if possible, LDS callers, if possible. Have your questions, comments, or threats ready, and turn your television sets 
uh, down. Listen through your phones, not through your TV. We're going to go to Tevika in Salt Lake City online too. Tevika, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, what's up, Sean? How you doing, Tevika? It's Tevika. Tevika. Yep. I'm good. Good. What's going on? Okay. Um, I was talking with a Mormon friend the other day. Yeah. And, um, and uh, we, we were talking about salvation and how uh, the Christian belief is that it's salvation by faith and faith alone. And uh, he was telling me, you know, they believe uh, salvation by faith, but also with works. Yeah. And, um, and I was trying to tell him, explain to him, like, even the faith that we have is given from God. Yes. And he said, see, if you're putting faith in Jesus, that's a work. Yeah. And, um, and I was just wondering if you could, like, kind of explain a, a, a way to talk about it and... Yeah, it's an argument they use, uh, missionaries often use, and your friend probably learned it too, and they try to tie faith into being a work, therefore you're saved by your works. But a couple things. One, faith is de 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 defined as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Secondly, it is not faith that saves you. It's the blood of Jesus that saves you. And so there's a difference between those two in that uh, it's the blood of Jesus alone and Jesus Christ alone who saves you. It's not the faith. Faith is what we have in Him, but that is not what saves us. And so that's how you would argue them when they say you're saved by your works because faith is a work. Faith is, it may be a work or may not be. I would just throw that right out of the table. I don't think it is, but I'd just throw that right off and say that's not what saves you anyway. It's the blood of Jesus. And they would say, well, how do you understand that blood of Jesus? And you believe in it? And you can call it faith, but that's not a work. What do I do when I say, wow, I accept that Jesus' blood saves me. Wow, that was a hard work I had to go at, you know? It brought so much sweat down my brow. It, they, they do, they'll say anything and mix anything to try to bring their faulty uh, ideology into the uh, picture of how salvation comes across. When Jesus was, was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Veil was ripped in two. That means it's done. Stamped. Stamped teleos in the Greek. Stamped. Paid in full, the debt. There's nothing else. And for these guys, it's like they're walking by the cross. Jesus, let me climb up there and do a little of my own suffering because you couldn't handle it. You know, I'm a special kind of guy. I need to do my own stuff just to prove it. What kind of, you, I would throw out the thief on the cross. What did the derelict thief on the cross, who was probably a murderer, what did he contribute there on the cross? What work was he doing except dying? And Jesus said, yet today you'll be with me in paradise. They're just mixing you up, uh, Tevika? <laughs> They're just mixing you up, man. Don't listen to them. All right. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Okay, bye. We are going to May, first-time caller from Holiday May. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. What's going on? Uh, I just want to ask Sean some questions. Well, this is Sean. Oh, hi, Sean. Hi, May. Hey, I'm really enjoy your show, and I'm really glad that I got to 
stumble on you because um, I've learned a lot about Joseph Smith and all the Church of LDS. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah how long have you been watching? Oh, about, I guess, about four or five months. Uh-huh. And have you lived in Utah long? Um, yeah, I have. And so are you LDS? Uh, yeah, I am. And how's that going? Well, that's why I'm, I'm really glad I got to watch your show because I'm learning a lot about it. And I've awesome. always had these questions and I want to, um, I understand more now. Awesome. May, hey, do, you, do you use the internet? Um, no, I don't. Oh, well, one, one thing I just want to caution you on, May, is what happens often with many people, and we read these by the thousands, is when they start to become informed and sometimes are often disillusioned by what Mormonism has fed them their whole life, they just decide to roll over and, and, and say God doesn't exist. And uh, that is, I have always maintained, the greatest evil Mormonism does is that it gets people to say, I believe, I believe wholly. It gets your whole mind and heart wrapped up in it. And then suddenly when you find out it was a lie, you say everything is a lie. Don't believe it, May. It's, that's one of the dark sides of Mormonism. Somewhere up there in that holiday area, you got to find one of those good Bible teaching churches and they're up there and you go up and just uh, sit in one and don't give it up and keep talking to the Lord like I'm sure you have done throughout your life. You sound like you're a seeker of truth and ask him to open your eyes and heart and he'll do it. I got, a, I got one question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious about Virgin Mary. Yeah. Uh, this lady was on TV the other night. She had a, her brain, um, a picture of her brain and it had Virgin Mary and I said, what? I yeah. don't understand. And the Catholics, seems like a lot of people praise the Virgin Mary. Why? Answer this question. Well, you know, the Catholic reason, not the theological reason, but the reason Catholics always tell me is that, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're in the neighborhood and you want something from the son who's really wealthy and rich, so you're nice to the mother, and, uh, and then maybe she'll give you an introduction to the son and it helps you out. They, they kind of put it in that way. It's the mother of God. She's worthy of your prayers. She was a holy vestige of femininity and all this stuff. But, you know, Mary, uh, Jesus, our example... He never prayed to his mother, uh, and uh, he never really praised her with all kinds of accolades. He prayed to the Father, and, uh, and so I would just uh, stay on that track. They just kind of hold her up as uh, someone worthy of prayer. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we just, uh, you're going to pray straight to God. You don't need any human intermediaries going on. That's what I always believed. I do too, May. I go right to the Father and Jesus. Straight to Him, May. It's the right. only way. Yeah. Okay, keep up the good work. I, I really enjoy you. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to Pete in Orem, first-time caller. Pete, you're on Heart of the Matter. Pete. Oh, oh, hey, Sean. Hey, Pete. Hey, how's it going, Sean? I'm doing well, Pete. Well, I was wondering about the uh, different uh, realms in uh, Mormonism. I heard they had uh, different kinds that they can go to after death. Is that true? Yeah, they believe there's uh, three levels. Well, actually, how it works is this. Down at the lowest one is outer darkness. That's where people who once received the truth and left it. <laughs> then there is the lowest kingdom, the telestial 
And that is where adulterers, liars, murderers go, who reject Jesus, who reject God. But Joseph Smith said it's a heaven, it's a glory, it's a great place. Oh, and, so do you, think, do you think I might go there? I, I, I reject God, Sean. Then, then according to the Mormons, you are going to the celestial kingdom, and you're going to have a party. So, uh, so well, they offer you... Time, Sean. They offer you kind of a more appealing package. What's that? Well, it seems like they almost support uh, Satanism then, in a way, that way, kind of, you know? Uh, however you want to put it, man. You can put it any way you want. But uh, that's what they teach. And actually, they teach that theirs is a far more grace-filled message. Because in their theology, you know, God doesn't condemn people to hell who don't believe in Him. He gives them a kind of a little cool reward place. Yeah, you can pretty much tell, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sean. Um... Well, say my uh, name I, a lot, I like, Pete. I like the new look, Sean. Uh, I like this. I like the clean shape, man. I think you gave me a compliment, and thank you so much. All right, thanks a lot, man. Okay, bye. See you later. Bye. All right, we're going to Chip in Salt Lake City. Chip, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, how's it going? Good, Chip. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I just had a question. I um, I used to be LDS, and I recently just left ship, and I was wondering about marriage. Um, the woman who I who I joined the Mormon Church in the first place was uh, LDS. And, yeah. And um, she wanted to get married in the temple, and um, I was unable to like provide enough for uh, us to get married there. And she pretty much told me that the whole wedding was off. But so I've pretty much abandoned ship. I'm not um, going to go to the Mormon faith. But I had a question regarding the religion. Something she told me kind of disturbed me. Yeah. Um, she told me that when uh, she wanted to get married in the temple because uh, there was some sort of celestial uh, type of kingdom thing yeah. that she would she would become pretty much a god of her own planet. Is that along the lines of, of truth or right on target? Perfectly uh, put, Chip. By her, being, by her being sealed to you in the LDS temple, they believe that is the thing that will put them in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. And in that level, they become gods of their own planets. They procreate for eternity and, uh, and on and on and on. Anything less than that highest level, you can't reach if you're not sealed or married in their temple. And uh, so then she was telling you absolute truth. She believed it, and she wanted you to take her there. We would procreate for eternity? Yeah. Cool. Sounds, it it sounds of sort of inviting in, in, in a way, but, uh, you know, the poor women spend their whole eternity pregnant. Really? I, would, I mean, if you're procreating for eternity, there's got to be a lot of pregnant women up there. Yeah, we'd both be kind of tired. Then, I, I would think, I would think. And all those oh. crying babies. Well, I just thought that that was just a crazy idea. And then when she told me that, I, I never had much of the doctrine shoved down in my throat. But when I heard that, I thought, that, this, this is just crazy. It's absolutely true. If there's a Latter-day Saint who will call and please refute if I'm saying something that's wrong, please call and say, Sean, that's not true. But it's absolutely true. Oh, God, that is just weird. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, I like... I, I liked, it, I liked it better last week with the beard, though, Sean. I gotta tell you the truth. You can't do that to me, Chip! Where were you? I had all these people telling me I was ugly, and now you're telling me I was hot! 
I thought the bird was awesome. I really liked it. So did I, man. I feel like such a sellout. I'm sorry. Have a good one. Well, all right. All right, Chip. I, I, Take it easy. All right, you too. Okay, bye. You know, I'm looking down at this monitor. I can't help it. And it's just like a big white moon. It used to be a nice beard. Now we got the big white moon. We're going to DR in Salt Lake City on line two. DR, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you're looking good. Uh, I've called before, so uh, I just wanted to know what your thoughts on the Blackwater massacre were. Uh, I read in the paper today they were thinking about replacing troops with uh, robots. I just wanted to get your opinion on that. <coughs> Another one. I've warned you once. No ganj before the show. No vodka before you call. DR. Yes. Do you want to you want to present that question a little bit more clearly? Um. Without laughing. Oh, I wasn't laughing. Oh, good. What is it again, DR? Give it to me one more time, quickly. Uh, I just wanted to know what your thoughts on the Blackwater massacre were, and uh. What are your thoughts on replacing the troops with robots with? Mm. Well, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. All right, thank Thanks, you. Sean. Okay, bye. <laughs> I've heard of Blackwater Massacre. I think it was in uh, Provo Canyon. But it, as, as far as uh, robots, I don't know about. <laughs> My audience is now responding. This is just getting so loose. We're going to Eli and Ogden. Uh, Eli, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good, Eli. How are you? I'm well. I have one quick, uh, one quick question. Why don't you have campus ministry at BYU? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. We, we would like to do that. If you have any secret way or open way of doing it, let me know. Well, anyway, what I called in for, Sean, is one thing I'd like to hear you uh, talk about on one of your lectures, is uh, sometimes there are... Um, I got into a discussion with the boys in the black polyester suits the other day, and I had them run. I ran them off just by asking them, you know, let's compare the comparison between a man-centered religion and a God-centered religion. Oh, where God-centered religion based uh, God-centered religion based around because I love God, therefore I do these good works. You know, I help my fellow man and I feed my you know the hungry. A man-centered religion is saying if I do these things, then God's got to pay me off. Yeah. And that's how the LDS faith is based upon. And when I said that, I, and then they started getting me on the works doctrine, and then they hit me up on the works doctrine, and I said, so when do you know you've done enough? And secondly, are you, are you comfortable with that? And they couldn't answer that, and they, they, they ran off saying, oh, well, we've got to go, we've got another appointment. But if I would have bought, it, bought into their little dogma, then I would have been, oh, yeah, let's sit here and talk. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's but, a really... Yeah, but I'd like you to do uh, someday maybe do one on that, how the comparison between the man-centered religion and the God-centered religion. Yeah, well, uh, that's a good idea, Eli. And you bring up a good point about their method of operation. From what I've seen, with most Christians who are involved in evangelizing and missionary work, it, they are willing to spend uh, 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 10 seconds out on the street to 10 years or 20 years with an individual until they are able to come through and, and have the vision and have the hearing that the Lord gives them to understand His truths. With Mormonism, they will do what they're doing. It's a hit and miss, and they'll hit you, and if you give them any resistance that shows any form of intelligence, 
as far as a question, they then turn tail and run till they can find a victim who doesn't have those questions, and then they can indoctrinate them. And so you bring up a really good point. As and far biggest, as your point on, big, uh, uh, what's that? The biggest question that got him was, I said, well, if you go on your worst doctrine, what, is, what assurance do you have that you're getting into heaven? And they didn't bring up Jesus Christ. Wow. They put, well, I pray upon it. And I'm like, and are you comfortable with that? And they asked me, well, what assurance do you have? And I did what you said, you know, the blood of Christ is my assurance. Yeah. You know, that I'm getting to heaven. And they're like, well, are you comfortable with that? And I said, can you find me a better deal than yeah. the grace of God? Yeah, it's like amazing. I cannot believe it. I mean, this is starting to get my ire up. I hear this kind of, and it just blows my mind. You can't make it up. You cannot make this up. They do you know, it all the time. This was, this, this was trained missionaries. But I told them when they walked in the door, I said, I know more about your faith than you know. And when I started bringing up some of their old doctrine, you know, about their faith works and all that, and they're like, well, you know, it says in the Bible that, you know, you'll judge them by their works. And I said, you'll judge Christians by how well they treat other people, not by what they choose to do in the community. Right. Hey, great, great call, Eli. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks, John. Thanks, and we'll touch on that subject sometime. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Another way to put it, are you happy because you're good? Or are you good because you're happy? And uh, that's a question that uh, philosophy has asked and answered. Mormonism would say, I am happy because I am good. Christians would say, I am good because I am happy. There is a fundamental difference right there on the scales between the two. Okay, let's go to Martha uh, line two. First time caller, Martha, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. This is, uh, my name is Martha, and I was just... I'm coming out of Mormonism, uh -huh. was inactive for about five years, and now I'm giving Christianity a serious study. However, keep coming back to the question, how do you know for sure the Bible is true? You know, um, I think that you've been, you have been given a uh, model, which is LDS, and I don't blame you. I've ha I carried those models with me, too, and that is the question, how do I know the Bible is true? And instead of, um, maybe the question shouldn't be that. The question should be, God, show me what truth you have. And that way, you're not putting it on uh, looking at each verse as you read it, thinking, well, is that one? And then you go to the next verse, is that one? And instead, give it to God and just say, lead me, open my eyes, help me see and hear and know truth as I go along. And every morning and every day, put it on Him and trust Him. How do you know when He's telling you, though? I mean, if... I had a testimony that wasn't true. Right. How do you know when it is true? This, this, gets, this gets heavy because we start getting into uh, a whole discussion on feelings and knowing and what types of knowledge there are. We did a show. Gosh, I wish I remember what number that was. I think it was in 2006 and it was on knowing. Let me put it to you simply. You can't know a falsehood. You can say, I can, I'm going to cross that bridge safely to the other side. I know it's safe. And as you're crossing that bridge, when it collapses on you, you didn't know it. You just believed it. The only thing you can really know is truth with a capital T. And the only truth there really is, is the person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's him, Jesus. So when it comes to knowing, you can know without question, him, because he said you can. Well, but every how will you know it? What, will it be? It's not, a, it's, not, uh, it's not relegated to the emotions. It's not relegated to uh, feelings or to intellectualism. 
It's in a realm of the spirit. You're, you're composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And God communicates to you through your spirit. Your soul is comprised of mind, will, and emotions. The Mormon church operates on the soul. But your spirit, when it is spoken to by God, it knows in a way that transcends the things of this world. So for me to explain to you, if it hasn't happened yet, is going to be an impossibility for you to understand what that truth is. If you ask a Mormon, how do you know? They'll say, I felt it. I had a burning in my heart. I really, you know, they have a lot of emotional things. But when you talk to a Christian, how do you know? It is a spiritual witness that when you have it, I promise you, Martha, you won't, it won't even be a matter of discussion. And so what you have to do is you have to exert that thing called faith. And you have to go and step out and say, God, I'm trusting you and your promises. I'm having faith in you. I don't know. I'm having faith that you're going to show me and let him do the showing rather than you looking for the feeling or the thought or the emotion or intellect to, to discern. Do you understand kind of what I'm saying? I think so. It's kind of, kind of, believe it because you have faith until you know it for a fact. Yeah. And, and I think that is the best way that so I've been able to believe. understand to explain it to someone who has yet been given that, that knowledge that God gives. Remember Jesus said, the, or the scripture says, if you're in the flesh, things of the flesh can't know the things of the spirit. So and you the, basically choose to believe then. You yeah, believe it, because it's it a choice and then you know. It is, and that's a really good point. It is a, it's often a choice to believe. There are times when, you, when I say, Lord, I'm, I'm going on this just by faith because I, I simply, uh, I, you know, I'm doubting or, or I'm, I'm wondering, but I'm going to believe in your promises. I believe that is as much a faith as saying, I really know your promises are true. And, and so go by that and trust him and he will not fail you. Okay. I think I can do that. I'll also look up that show. Yeah. Check that show out. I think it will help you. And do you have our book? I do. I'm about halfway through. Oh, good. Let me know what you think. I sure will. Thank you, Sean. Okay, Martha. Bye. Bye. They always come in at the end. We're going to Betty. First time caller in Roy. Betty, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, I like you better without your beard. And yes, the church does believe that in this next life, we're going to keep having babies. And I've had enough. Thank you. I am so, you know, I don't understand lots of things. You know, I've been on two missions. I moved here thinking this was Mecca. We'd all be loved and encompassed. This is not a democracy. This is a theocracy, which I resent more than anything. I hate the fact that uh, these people are like glimmerings. I mean, they're like blinded people. They'll run off the cliff if somebody lifts their hand. Their minds are gone. Uh, it's a different experience. Tell us what you really think, Betty. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me tell you, I can go on and on. I'm so shocked. I'm terrified. They teach you through fear. Uh, my faith is devastated, but not in God, not Good. in Jesus Christ. And I will stay true to that as long as I live. Awesome. What I want to know is, how many, so many things have been changed, like, you know, in the sacred place we can't discuss, they've changed the name to the company. You make all your, your vows, you know, you're giving everything to the company, you're doing this to the company. What happened to Jesus Christ? What happened to the church? Uh, what happened to so many things? This is just so upsetting. I mean, it's like being taught a faith and then been transported to outer space. Yeah. I understand your point, and it's amazing how you can watch it occur when you step outside a little bit and just see it go, 
worse. It gets, it's getting worse and worse. Oh, there's so many evil people here who say stuff and do exactly the opposite. They are not walking in faith. They are not wake, walking in the path of the Savior. No. This is like a big, well, I can see why they call them a cult. This is a group. This is a club. This is a company. It's very well-headed. But mm. I can't live in fear. What I want to know is how do you become deprogrammed? I mean, after you've been on a couple missions and you've lived your life in this, and suddenly it's like your eyes are open and you just want the heck out. How do you get rid of this feeling that, you know, something's going to happen if you change? Betty, that God you said you believe in, that Jesus you said you haven't given up, go to him and just just offer it up to say, I need to be deprogrammed. Help me to to shed myself of this stuff. And, And I can't stress this enough, my friend. That Bible, open it up. It says it will renew your mind. That deprogramming thing that we have. You can deprogram that mind. The Word renews it and cleans out. It puts in the good and barfs out the bad. Well, it's so true. It's like taking your garments off. You've heard so many stories that someone was in a fire and the parts where their garments were on were saved. I'm so tired of these That's because it's an extra things. layer of clothing. Huh? That's because it's an extra layer of clothing. Of course that part's not going to be burned as badly as the part that was exposed. I know. We live like in a day of witchcraft. It's fear and terror. And, and if you call somebody on it, and, and if you're a career woman and you move here, they hate you. They fear you. You're ostracized. I, I just can't even believe this. It's like you step back into the 14th century, and they hate everybody. <laughs> Betty, I appreciate your frankness. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. I just get wound up. I'm just... So I understand. I understand you completely, believe me. Thanks well, for watching. Thanks to the right church because there's got to be one around here that actually loves the Savior and loves everyone unequivocally. You're going to have trouble with, with people loving everyone anywhere you go, but still, uh, there are better places to worship the Lord. Will you email me and we'll give you some uh, uh, leads in that way? Yes, awesome. I'd love it. All right, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Really quickly, first-time caller. Alex, you're on Heart of the Matter. I'm sorry, you have 30 seconds. Okay, uh, I was just uh, wanting to read these uh, scriptures, and it's in Matthew 7, 3, and it says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine own eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. And then shalt thou see clearly to cast up the mote of thy brother's eye. So I just was saying, like, I know you really come down hard on the Mormons and everything. You know, by uh, quoting that scripture to me, you're guilty of the thing you're accusing me of. Well, I'm not saying anything. I'm just reading what the Savior said. (laughs) Yeah, right. You're not saying anything. That's called a lie. The Bible's against that, too. Okay, we got to let you go. I understand your point. We're out of time. Call back next week, Matthew. Uh, Tune in next week to Heart of the Matter. See you then. Break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break
Dusty King.